You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sanger always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. BJ Damoji Purapu is with me. That took me. You a got it spot on, Lila. Nice <laughs> I, job. <laughs> I had to practice that many, many times. Let me tell you. Yeah. Hello, um, everyone. Yeah, and uh, we're really excited that you're joining us today. And um, we just wanted to start out the session. We're going to introduce ourselves, then we're going to set the context, and then we're going to talk about two strategies that um, I'm going to talk about: an operating framework, and BJ is going to talk about a growth flywheel that we think are going to really help you um, help your business grow and also help reinforce your position as a leader within your early stage companies. So that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to introduce Vijay. Vijay is going to introduce me and then we'll kick it off. So Vijay is the, he's a longtime Peak member and a founder and principal at Strativ, which is a consulting firm that helps organizations build integrated go-to market strategies that drive revenue and pipeline growth. He's got over 20 years of operating experience serving technology, telecom, e-commerce, retail, and he's been a marketing leader, an advisor, and an investor. And he also hosts this amazing podcast called the B2B Go-To Market Leaders. So if you aren't listening to his podcast, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, He has, in the course of the last two years, interviewed amazing leaders, including our own Sangram Vajare, as well as many others, and he'll tell you about that in a minute. And uh, Vijay, I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, thank you for that lovely intro, Lila. So talking about Lila, Lila Gill has over 20 years of B2B SaaS marketing experience. She's a veteran in B2B SaaS marketing world. She has helped fintech, retail tech, and HR tech SaaS-based companies. Triple, triple, double, double in revenue helping them build out their product roadmaps, sales and marketing and operation strategies. Now, Lita has experience with both large enterprises as well as SMBs and has directly closed or helped close deals with Fortune 500 giants like Walmart, Eli Lilly, Lockheed Martin, Home Depot, and many others. So with that, we are ready to kick off this session. So over to you, Lita. Awesome. So this slide is to set the context for the conversation. I mean, a lot of us, hopefully all of us are in early stage companies and we know firsthand that being a marketing leader in these companies is crazy and chaotic. And um, just for to put the context around that, uh, I found some data that said there are over a million tech startups being formed every year globally. So a million companies tech startups, and then TechCrunch recently published some data around that 60% of those startups only make it to Series A. And of that group, 20% make it to Series B. So what that means for us is there's a lot going into the pipeline, into the funnel or whatever you want to call it, and only a few things coming out. I think there's only 200 that go IPO every year. So millions starting out and call it 200 coming out every year. It's a crazy, crazy environment. And um, my analogy is like, we're like a bunch of little baby sea turtles trying to 
get to the ocean and swim and survive. And if we do survive, um, we're going to live a long and prosperous life, but it's really getting to that series B stage. It's really tough. And, um, and Vijay, I think you've got some more data here from uh, Wilbur Ladd that you want yeah, to talk absolutely. about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To underscore Leela's point, right. A startup incubator here in San Francisco Bay area, uh, the name is Wilbur, Wilbur Labs, and they recently surveyed over 150 founders. And here's what they discovered. Now, founders said that better marketing is the fourth important reason to prevent startup failures. We're talking about, yes, number one is research prior to launch, stronger business plan, more financial backing investors, sure, tick, tick, tick. But then better marketing, fourth most important reason to prevent startup failures. Now, the good news is that these founders actually stated that better marketing is way more important or more important than even having a better product. So that's good news for all of us here. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a silver lining. <laughs> First top of this message, we're going to just try to talk about a framework and um, some principles. So winning businesses are different than everybody else. Now, we all have probably read all those books out there that talk about how businesses, some businesses grow faster than others. And most of us that have interacted with VCs know that they make their investment decisions primarily on a few key factors, including the skill of the leadership team, the um, uh, power of the product, being able to go in and disrupt a market, and how large the market is. So we kind of understand all those factors. Um, and we also, VJ and I also understand there's lots of other factors that you have to com- contend with, like competitive barriers to entry and um, level of experience and the you know depth of your actual product. Is the product really delivering the capability? But for purposes of this discussion, we're going to try to hone in on what you specifically as a marketing leader can do to um, help your company thrive, grow and thrive in this crazy competitive world of early stage business. So um, to help us tell this story, we have decided that we would um, use a basketball analogy here and there. Uh, We debated about cricket versus baseball, soccer versus football, but we landed on basketball. And um, so there are 30 NBA teams in the NBA and everybody knows only two make it to the championship. So why is that? Well, we think it's basically there's three key components there. It's the skill. It's the team that they have. Clearly, that's a big deal. We're not going to talk about that today because that could be three webinars on its own. But how they operate and how they think and act differently are um, two of the components that the other components that we think make those teams really special. So those are the two legs of this framework that we're going to um, dig into. So with that, I think, um, Vijay, you wanted to... Yeah, absolutely. So as uh, Leela alluded and illustrated over here, so she's going to cover the operating framework, and I'm going to cover what I call as the winning CMO flywheel. So think of it as two pieces, but two very important pieces. So Leela is covering the operating framework, which is the machine running uh, and uh, for me, what how I'm going to share the machine? is yeah. how do you make that machine run faster and faster? It's all the flywheel. And one thing I want to add over here is sharing this exp- uh, insights from my own personal experience. But more than that, I'm actually sharing insights and all these data points from doing extensive research. 
And when I say extensive research, it's a combination of both primary and secondary. And I've had the good fortune of speaking with many of these winning CMOs and winning marketing leaders on my B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. The list includes Sangam Bajre, Sangam Bajre, who is a co-founder uh, and first CMO of Terminus, Udi uh, Lettergore, Gong CMO, Kai Lacey, uh, Lesson Lee CMO, Dave Gerhardt, Drift Chief Brand Officer, Jeffrey Kurz, Aircall CMO, and many others. All right. So that is the context and... Um... This is the framework. Oops. So again, as Vijay said, I'm going to talk about how to create a machine and he's going to talk about how to make that machine run faster. So um, the framework I'm going to talk about is basically uh, talks about time, money, and focus. And I think that these three things, I mean, again, I'm going to state some obvious things. It's like everybody knows how to lose weight and yet we don't necessarily achieve those goals, even though we know we have to eat less and eat healthier and exercise, right? So um, the first leg of this framework is time. And if you can go to the next slide, uh, DJ, I'll just dig into what I mean by that. So when I talk about time, I'm talking about um, formally putting together a quarterly cadence calendar. And um, that, that speaks to three different groups, your executive stakeholders, your specific team members, and your customers. And um, so again, to step back and talk about the NBA basketball analogy, you know, the NBA has a very clear schedule. They know when preseason is, you know, when regular season is, you know, when the all-star game is, you know, when the trade deadlines are, you know, when the championships are, and so on and so forth. So I am recommending that as you as an early stage leader, actually put together that schedule for your company and uh, the, and have that schedule actually put onto the calendar for the full year. I mean, if you can't do it for the full year, put it on for the next three months, but schedule time with your stakeholders, your CEO, your VP of sales, your CPO as a group now. And I know, let me just speak to this for a minute because I know a lot of us have those meetings to prepare for VC funding. We have those meetings to prepare for a board meeting. Um, but my experience, and I'd be curious to hear what others say, um, is that a lot of the uh, discussions that happen in those meetings is really focused around what do we want to tell the board, as opposed to having an honest and open conversation about how do we solve these problems. And so the meetings I'm talking about are leaving the ego at the door and being able to come into the um, setting and have a really honest conversation with your VP of sales, with your CEO. And, you know, here's the data to show that here's my, the pipeline. Here's what, here's what we won. Um, you know, here's what the closed one deals look like. Here's what the closed loss deals look like. And the reasons why we lost, here's what our conversion metrics look like. Um, and then really kind of strategize with your stakeholders. The second point is do the same with your team, right? You're, so now you're managing up. Secondly, put the calendar together with your team. And if you're not doing 90-day OKRs with your team members, I strongly encourage you to do that. Obviously, you know, you should be giving your team members feedback every day. And, you know, as things come up, you want to be, um, you know, especially if there's performance issues, you want to capture and give them feedback right away. You don't want to wait 90 days to give somebody feedback if they're not 
um, you know, on par with what you're expecting. But the 90-day OKRs, again, allow you as the leader to step back and really look at how this particular individual, you know, it's like watching the tape, right? The coaches are watching the tape now in the NBA. They watch and they, they look at it and then they sit back and they watch the tape with the actual player, right? Um, so again, that's, I think if you're not doing that, I really think that that's a framework. And the key here is formalizing it. It's not, it's, it's putting it on your calendar and holding yourself accountable to doing it. And the last piece here of this cadence is uh, doing the same thing with your customers. Now, if you're going after and have large enterprise customers, I strongly recommend if you're not doing this to set up quarterly business reviews with those large enterprise customers. And, um, you know, the day we, they don't have to be half day offsites. They can be one hour Zoom meetings. Everybody's pretty comfortable with that these days, but setting up a process where you're actually having a good positive conversation with those, those customers. If you're targeting the SMB market, maybe it's doing a formal poll with your user groups every quarter um, or, or some mechanism where you're outreaching to your community to get feedback and, you know, take not just the positive, but also take the negative and, and figure out how to use that in your next quarterly review. So that's the first piece. Of- yeah, so if I can chime in over here, yeah. Lila, I think Thank what you. you stated over here on a quarterly cadence is super important. Takes me back to my days at uh, GreenBits when I was a head of marketing. This is my time prior to me starting my own uh, company. Uh, so what we did back in GreenBits, and again, GreenBits was at that time a seed transitioning into a Series A startup stage. And we had this quarterly cadence of an offsite. It's typically an offsite where all the key leaders, cross-functional leaders, CEO, we all meet and review how we are targeting or how we are charting our course towards an annual goal that we as a company decided. So that's a quarterly cadence. And yes, as you said, it's just being brutally honest and uh, just admitting and accepting, hey, you know what? Sorry, we guys screwed up with campaigns this month or this quarter, and we're going to correct that and course correct that next quarter, mm-hmm. right? So that and was yeah. the kind of discussions. And then same thing with the weekly. So when we bring that whole quarterly down to the weekly, we do that review. And I did that review with my team, marketing team. And then and to your third point, absolutely made time and made sure that the marketing team and myself included spoke with our customers on a regular basis, weekly or monthly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Crystal put a comment in here about 90 day OKRs are difficult because things are changing so, so fast. Um, and I would make the case, and, but I, I get it. I've, I've been there, done that. So I, I understand how crazy and, and how we think things are changing really quickly. I, I also would make the case though, that 30 days is, is if you're, course correcting in 30 days, that might be too fast. Like, I don't know if that's enough time. My experience has been, that's not enough time to let your programs actually figure out if your programs are working. Um, But that said, yes, I do know, you know, that people are meeting every 30 days. I mean, for me, for example, I'm meeting with my, my sales leader every week, right? And sometimes we're meeting twice a week and we're having informal conversations and I would expect all of you are doing that same thing. But but what's different about this quarterly cadence is it's stepping back, it's preparing for the meeting, it's really thinking and looking at your metrics over a, a, a you know 90-day period. I would argue 
you need to look at it over 90 days just to see if you're getting the right traction, especially when we talk about um, the components that VJ is going to talk about content and other, other pieces and, and seeing if they're really responding. Um, also, just um, a side note, please, uh, we'd love to have you adding your commentary and telling us, you know, if this is, if this makes sense or if it doesn't make sense in the chat, um, we'd appreciate any feedback that way because it's a little hard uh, just to talk and not actually get that, that feedback, so... Yeah, so let me actually uh, pose a question to the audience. And if you can just chime in again into the chat uh, window over here. How many of you actually do a quarterly cadence, like what Lita said? Just say yes or a no. That's good enough. I say Crystal, yes. Swaminathan, no. Ashley, yes. Julian, no. Matt, yes. Sarah, no. Stacy, yes. Sarah, yes. Okay. Anthony B, yes. Ryan, yes. So, it's the majority is yes. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Yeah. And my only question is, um, and that's fantastic. But again, to help underscore you as a leader there, are you, is it on the, and, and you don't have to answer this, but is it actually scheduled out for the year? And are you as the marketing leader uh, really sort of helping running that, that meeting? Because that will help underscore your leadership role on the, within the team. Yeah, so just, just to highlight, I think what Matt mentioned in this comment, uh, in the chat window is super important. He actually admitted that the customer piece is missing from the cadence, and he also said not for lack of one. I'm not sure what that is, but just the fact that Matt highlighted and admitted that's missing, that that's a good step. You know where you're lacking. You just need to execute on that piece next time. Yeah. Something, uh, what Julian mentioned, uh, again, uh, what he said is, we don't have buy-in from the leadership team. Again, not from lack of trying, which I find right. surprising, but just let's just leave it at that for now. Yeah, let's let's circle back to that, VJ, when we open things up and have a conversation, because I, I, I've, I've also had that same struggle. And I'm sure some of, if not everybody on this phone, phone call has had the same similar problem. So we can we can uh, talk about strategies we've used to sort of get better buy in. And uh, the, the only thing I'll say is data is really powerful. Like if you present yes. data. Yes. To your CEO, you all of a sudden have a, a mechanism for sort of getting better buy-in and just saying, look, this is the conversion rate. Uh, we, don't, we sold this much. We were able to win these many deals. And we were, when we lost these many deals, we obviously have to improve that. So, um, okay, the next slide is money. Some of you said budget is, is really tough. And um, yeah, a lot of us don't have the luxury of having millions or even a million dollars to spend in a marketing program. We have thousands and, and hopefully hundreds of thousands, but that is, you know, a small budget when it comes to marketing. So um, typically, again, my position here is you have a limited amount of money, put it on demand gen activities, I know that we all struggle. We want to do everything at the beginning. We want to do brand. We want to do demand. We want to do, you know, have all the fancy tech stack tools out there. We want to do PR, AR, personalization, web, web webinars, customer events. You know, um, we want to do everything. But when you have a limited budget, you have to really put the blinders on and focus and, and make sure you're executing um, that budget in a very... Uh, prioritized way with respect to the pipeline. So um, in my opinion, your limited dollars should go towards your tech stack, 
obviously you need a tech stack to deploy any marketing programs. And um, we can talk about the specifics in the tech stack during the uh, Q&A session. Brand, your website, which means to me, brand messaging and website are sort of all together. Um, if you, and paid and SEO, I think are really important. If you have to give up one, go for paid because SEO takes forever. I mean, it doesn't take forever, but it takes a long time. Um, paid, at least you can get yourself on the first page of Google right away. And um, uh, what would be the top three? Um, tech stack, uh, I would put, well, website, whatever you have to allocate to get a great website. And I would, and, you know, whatever. Um, so we have, there are lots of, in my budget, we have lots of little tools like Crazy Egg, where we look at um, website heat maps and things like that to give you some intelligence around where people are clicking and Obviously, you've got your Google Analytics to help you understand your conversion rates on your pages. Um, but so right after tech stack, I'd put paid advertising and content and content and paid like you, you got to have both of those, I think, at this stage. Um, and uh, SEO is not in my mind, SEO is 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 not paid. It's um, how do you get people to how do you get on Google's first page? with organic searches, you know, and that strategy is typically run through um, a lot of blog posts and content and things like that. So, um, so Lita, what I'm hearing is content, content, content it starts with that. Yeah. Or, content. Or that's investment. Yeah, you have to have content. I mean, you, you don't, you, you have to have content obviously. So if you don't have any content, you can't even do paid advertising. So yeah, content is at the core of everything. But anyway, the point I wanted to make on this slide is focus, like, uh, and it's more than goal setting, it's focus on your exit criteria. And, you know, what is it that's going to help you survive to the next stage, not just ARR, but like, if you get to series C, you know, series C is typically when you scale, right? So you need to be able to have documented key processes, you need to have all those playbooks in, in hand, and so on and so forth. So, um, so that's that's the operating framework. Again, I know it's pretty high level, and I'm, uh, but I do think the, the the key point here is formalizing it and um, putting these things together on your calendars and, and sort of creating better habits for yourself. Just like um, we all know, we need to eat better if we want to lose weight. Um, but um, so I will turn it over to you, VJ, for the second half that talks about that growth flywheel and your amazing experience in interviews with um, these brilliant minds that you've, you've talked to on, on your podcast. Yeah, thank you for that, Leela. So as Leela alluded, it, it's more about uh, how do we, I mean, she, she gave the example of uh, diet, health, fitness, and so on. So what Leela covered in her broad section is think of it as the winning CMO's operating framework. So bringing it more, closer to us on a daily basis. So going to the gym, not just going to the gym, but going to the gym regularly. So that's her framework. That, that's what she can do. And that's what, if you follow that framework, that's what you'll get to. But what I'm going to cover is the winning CMO growth flywheel. Yes, you are going to the gym on a daily basis, but you're not satisfied with that. You want to push more. You want to go further. You're talking about, yes, going to the gym, on top of that, now I'm actually training and doing my half marathons, marathons, and triathlons. So you're taking a few levels up. Now, going back to the NBA analogy and what Leela mentioned earlier. So I'll, I'll take us back to the 90s. 
Okay. So Phil Jackson. There you go. I see that. Some of you may so, not have been born in the 90s, but we'll, we'll take you back. <laughs> we'll take you back. A short history lesson, but a very important one, though. So Phil Jackson was not just a coach, but he was a winning coach. And he shaped Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls team of the 90s to think and act differently. That, that's what hit it. And that's what a winning CMO does, right? Think and act differently. You're not like the other 25 or 26 NBA teams. You are the top one, top two, top three, but ideally top one. And what Phil Jackson did was amazing. The results that he got for the Bulls back in the 90s was six NBA championships with two three-peats. Not only that, they were the only NBA franchise to win 70-plus games in a season. And that record stood for 20 years until recently when Golden State Warriors broke the record. So we're talking about truly legendary stuff. Yes. <laughs> so let's now look at uh, Phil Jackson's of the B2B marketing world, right? How these winning CMOs. Or the Steve Kerr's B2B marketing world. There you right? go. Pick, pick your favorite coach. Yeah, pick your favorite uh, sports star. It, it doesn't matter. But the point I'm trying to make is let's now focus on that winning leaders. Right. I study these brilliant minds and even interviewed a couple of these winning CMOs as uh, Lila alluded. So Udi, Lettergore, Gong CMO. I'm not interviewed, hosted on my podcast yet, but I've studied what he does and what he's been doing. I've interviewed Sangam Rajre, Terminus co-founder and CMO. I've interviewed, interviewed Jeffrey Kurz, Aircall CMO. And talking about Aircall, they've had an amazing rocket ship growth over the last three years. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but definitely check what Airship has been doing. Uh, but Air more Im- Aircall, thank you. Aircall has been doing, but more importantly, all the go-to-market studies. And I'll, I'll cover a bit of that. And also had the good fortune of, fortune of uh, speaking with Kyle Lacey, the CMO of Lessonly. And uh, at some point in time, I would love to host Dave Gerhardt. He's now the chief branding officer at Drift. Uh, but but bringing it to what does it really mean for all of us today, right here, right now, right? So let's actually look at how these winning CMOs do their thing differently from others. So I actually, when I boil down all the insights from studying these great minds, the winning CMOs, it comes down to this visual. And I call this the winning CMO flywheel. By the mm-hmm. way, the term flywheel is so overly used in the marketing world, in the business world. So I really had to go back. Exactly. I, I can see the reactions on the Zoom here. I had to go back and Google and really understand, get to the core concept of what is a flywheel and why does it really matter in the marketing world and in the business world. So here is more of a mechanic 101 or flywheels 101, if you will, or even, even lesser than that. So a flywheel is a heavy revolving wheel that's part of a machine, right? And it actually serves a very important function, which is it actually stabilizes and ensures that the machine is having a constant momentum. That's super important. So if a machine is generating more power than it should be, it's going to throttle that back and vice versa. If the machine is not generating enough, right? It's going to whatever rotational energy and the kinetic energy that's stored in the flywheel it's actually going to power that machine and net net this machine is running on a good consistent rhythm and good momentum so 
if we take that analogy or, or if you take that real world example of a flywheel and apply it to what we call as or what I call as the go to market flywheel and the winning CMO flywheel. So think of it as these three pieces or, or not think of it. It is these three pieces. It is content, experiences and community. And when I say experiences, it's more events. It's not the entire customer journey touch points or it's not the product experiences. Yes, that's a world in itself. But for our discussion today, I'm just focusing on events per se. So the winning CMO flywheel is made up of these three cogs, the content, experiences, and community. And here's what the winning CMO does. Now, every winning CMO I studied they do these things differently. I mean, all marketing leaders are aware. They, they know these pieces. But what the winning CMO does is they do it differently. Now, early on in their marketing leader journey, they typically don't have a budget. We all agree to that. And I think some mm-hmm. of you mentioned that and uh, admitted that. But case in point, think Udi Lettergore first VP marketing of Gong, and now he's a CMO. And, uh, and if you go back and look at the recording and what he's shared, his stories and insights on with the peak community, right? And he clearly said, he, he didn't crib and complain that he didn't have a budget. What he said is, what can I do about content? And what can I do today with what I have? What, what can I do with what I have today? Put it differently, mm-hmm. okay? So with a very small budget, he came up with this high barrier content series, what we all know now as Gong Labs. So th- that's something, that's what a winning CMO does. Yeah. And, and I, I think just, on your next slide, you want to go, maybe you want to flip to the next slide because you're talking a little bit more about content on that slide. Yeah. So I just wanted to share that example, but I also want to emphasize one important point over here, which is the winning CMO, they don't attempt to do all these three things at the same time. They don't have the budget nor do they want to spread themselves thin. They are very good at saying no. So they do content first and then layer on experiences or community or vice versa. They, they, they change. It depends on the go-to-market business model and the market and the product. And a lot of those pieces have to go into this whole uh, go-to-market decision-making. But the point, again, I'm emphasizing over here and what these winning CMOs have done is they do one thing really, really well before layering on the others. So with that, sorry, I'm actually juggling and trying to do the transition as well as doing yeah. a bit of other things over here. So with that, talking about content, by the way, content is one of my favorite areas. And how I see it is content is the currency of a go-to-market uh, machine or go-to-market teams. Same as how code all the pieces of code and the language and all these, what the software development team does, that is their currency. That, that is fundamental. Okay, so when you use currency wisely, invest in it or invest it, you see good returns and same goes with content. When you invest in content, that's when you'll actually earn credibility, you'll earn trust and you'll earn brand affinity with your buyers and users. And winning CMOs invest in content. And when I say invest in content, not any type of content, but they invest in and create high value, high barrier content. Now, some of you may be wondering, what is this high value and high barrier content? Like, how, how do I know that it's high value and high barrier? So why not? I got those boiled down into these four points here. 
So the first point is the content has to be unique. So content that no one else can replicate or copy easily. So that's point number one. Second, it has to be done on a consistent basis. So to bring it home again, take the example or in your daily lives, you may be looking forward to maybe it's the LinkedIn post by some of your favorite business leaders or marketing leaders or sales leaders, right? So they have a habit and they deliver high value insights or just a quick entertaining note or or quick sense of humor note or, or something that they got an aha on that specific day. They just deliver and they share that with the broader community. That, that's one example. Or you may be looking forward to a podcast or a series of other webinars, right? So point I'm trying to get at is the content has to be, yes, unique, but it also has to be done on a consistent basis. In my case, I actually so look forward to the newsletter from James Clear. The reason being he, again, delivers high quality content, unique insights, and he's consistent. I mean, every Thursday morning, and I'm going to jump onto his newsletter after this webinar. So every Thursday morning, (laughs) he's sending this amazing newsletter. A lot of insights and wisdom packed into a very small set of words. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's what James Clear does. And that's what winning CMOs do as well. And the third piece is winning CMOs co-create the content. They create it with their community. They create it with the users. They create it with their peers. And fourth, which is super important, on top of the other three that I covered here, is the winning CMOs have a point of view. So when they're doing this content, when they're delivering a newsletter or a blog post or a podcast or a keynote speech, it's that they have a point of view. They're shaping the narratives and the conversation in the industry. Yeah, perfect. Hey, uh, I just wanted to throw in one one small example, and I know we're we're pushing time here, but... um, the other thing about data and unique content is you, one of the things that can be you can do is take different data streams and combine them into unique insights. So maybe your, you know, just like Gong has taken its its actual recordings and um, and done an analysis, you know, you can take your data for whatever your sector is um, and maybe go into a case study specifically and then. With that, complement it, uh, you know, use um, customer testimonials or interviews or survey data to, so you're taking multiple data streams and combining it into one piece to create something that's u- unique. And I, I really like VJ's definition. It, it, it's unique if it can't be done by somebody else, right? So um, that is uh, the definition of, of unique. Um, yeah. So DJ, moving on to your next slide, because I just, I want to leave a little bit of time so we can open it up and have conversations sure. with people. Sure, so you're yeah. saying that I need to zip through my rest of my slides, <laughs> sure I can do that. It's a little bit, a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, so talking about uh, the second component in the winning CMO flywheel, so it's experiences. And again, as I said earlier, it's events. So winning CMOs actually create memorable events. So, and here are the characteristics of memorable events. First, they focus on industry problems. It's not they selling or pitching their products or company. It's about focusing on industry problems and shaping the narrative once again, right? Second, they think 360, not just top of funnel, how do we get in more leads, but they think 360 beyond. It's more of touching and taking people along a journey. 
Third is they think ecosystem. And when I say ecosystem, they are not afraid to invite competitors. That, that's super important. And by the way, this, what Sangram Vajray has done actually opened my eyes to this very important and relevant point. What he has done with this whole Flip My Funnel movement and what he's done around creating the first Flip My Funnel event back in 2015 in Atlanta is amazing. Sangram and his team, they just focused on the problems that we as marketing people struggle with even to this day, with not just 2015, but even to this day, six years past, we're still struggling with this, right? And Sangram and his team just focused on that and they brought in competitors as well to speak. Again, they were not pitching their company. They're not pitching the product. Granted, they didn't have that yet, the product piece, but they were just focusing on the narrative and shaping the messaging and, and uh, just letting people talk about the problems and open up, right? So think of it that way. And when you think of events, you don't need to think big. You don't need to get started on a big event, no, a piece, or you don't need to start on that note yet, on that footing. So start small. You can do like a bunch of lunch and learns. You can do webinars, virtual events, but it has to be high value. Again, it goes back to what I stated in point number one or the first component, the content. It has to be high value and unique. And you shift and say a point of view. Okay. And then once you do that on a good cadence, you can then build and layer on and have your company branded events. Now, fifth and super important policy is these winning CMOs put their foot down and state very clearly to their sales leaders that, hey, you know what? I'm running this event and there are, there's no selling policy. You're not going to sell. You're not looking to close deals or, or, or even looking to close your quarter. That, that's not the policy. That's not the primary focus of this event. So these are the five characteristics of memorable events. So third component in the winning CMO growth flywheel is community. And when I say community, I'm talking about characteristics of, uh, I'm talking about thriving community, not just group of people meeting maybe daily and then they meet again six months later, but a thriving community, like what we all are doing today in peak and how we engage on a daily basis, be it offline or online, right? So that's a thriving community. And here are the three key characteristics of a thriving community. Number one, we, the members within the community share common pursuits or values. We, as part of peak, are very clear on improving our game on a daily, weekly, monthly basis one person improvement every day. We all share that. And that's why we're here. That's why I have the good fortune to speaking with all of you today, right? So that is very, very important. Second point is, I think this is something that Pablo alluded to his, uh, in, in his uh, speech or in his webinar last week with Peak is, yes, the community starts out with the creator, almost quote unquote broadcasting. It's not broadcasting, but, but that's how it gets started. But eventually it reaches a stage where there's a member to member interaction and strong bonds and relationship happening. So as an example, I actually hosted and met Leela almost a year ago, last September, October. And to, I just said, hey, you know what? I would love to have you on my podcast. That was my first interaction with her. But since then, after I joined uh, the P community in April, that's when I got to know Leela more and more. And here we are, like fast forward three, four, five months, we have partnered to do this webinar, right? So that, that's, the, that's a 
that that's what I'm talking about. It's a bond to bond. Uh, I mean, member to member bond that that's created over here. And the third is the 10, 30, 60 rule. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, what these numbers are. So the 10 is the 10%. So 10% of the community is, uh, they're the highly engaged people. They are the ones who are either commenting or providing insights or sharing examples. They engage almost on a daily basis. 30 is the 30% of the members who are moderately engaged. They do, uh, they're part of the events or they share some of uh, the other examples or, or just move uh, or share some of the lessons, right? They are the 30%. And then you have the 60% who are more of the non-engaged or not so highly engaged or not even closely engaged. But each of these segments within a community, they all play a very important role in building a thriving community. As an example, I won't spend too much time on this, but a quick one-minute story on this is I was looking, and I, I mean, spend, I, I spend decent time on LinkedIn just looking up stories and understanding how other people operate and think. And uh, when I, the other day when I was looking up, I came across this person named Mark Birch. A lot of people were commending and uh, applauding Mark. And so for me, being my natural curious self, I had to really go in there and find out and study who this Mark Birch person is. And lo and behold, so he is someone who is so passionate about DevOps, about AWS, about cloud. It's, it's not about AWS, but just he's so passionate about understanding and, and, and connecting people around DevOps problems. And that's what he's done. He's based in Singapore and he's created lunch and learns. He's created meetups and he's just out there always trying to talk about these problems and connecting people and helping each other solve their problems. And today he's one of the primary evangelists at AWS and for AWS in Singapore. And that's what AWS has done, right? I mean, yes, this webinar is about the winning CMO, but I didn't want to keep it just about the CMOs or marketing. There are a lot of great examples outside of the marketing world as well. All right. So bringing it home, we're almost there. <laughs> All right. So here's the winning CMO checklist and a quick summary. By the way, what these winning CMOs do is they're consistent. They know it's going to take a long time. They're in it for the long haul. They will encounter failures. They know about all these things, but they are committed to doing what is right for the go-to-market machinery and what is right for the business. So with that, Leela, you want to cover uh, the points? Oh, sure. Yeah, um, we can open it up for uh, discussion. This is just our wrap-up slide. So, um, you know, while people are maybe unmuting themselves, I'll, I'll talk about this for a second and you can wind it up. But, you know, just to recap, uh, we talked about at the very beginning, you know, just formally putting together a quarterly cadence around your, you know, meetings with your executives, your team, and your customers, and, and actually putting that and holding yourself accountable. We talked about, you know, budget prioritization as it relates to um, specifically demand gen, and um, really identifying what is your exit criteria and keeping your focus on that criteria. In fact, even maybe putting a big note above your computer or something and saying, you know, so you, you keep it there because of course we all know what you focus on 
is what gets done. So, um, and then the last three points, BJ, are yours. <laughs> yeah, so content, events, and community, right? So invest in high value, high barrier content, deliver sticky events and build a thriving community. That, that's what uh, you should be focusing on and uh, happy to discuss any of these and uh, just have a dialogue now. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, another word for sticky might be memorable. Yes. Memorable events, you know, um, uh, you know, just events that people talk about. And, and a lot of times, you know, I know we all feel like we have to, these days it feels like you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on these events, but um, you can create memorable, memorable events in a localized way as well. And uh, again, we, you know, we really want to open this up. So I'm curious if anybody has examples of just pick a, pick a topic here, but memorable events or that you've done or um, anything that you want to share with the group so that uh, we can all be benchmarking and helping each other. Um, best practices. Yeah, as Terry says, it's question time, but it's also question and sharing. Let's say, you know, um, what did you bring to the class today to share? <laughs> and uh, what are some of the best practices that you're using <laughs> to, um, so that we, because I think that's one of the value, that's that's one of the things that's really important about PEAK is that we all come and we contribute, um, you know, some of the lessons that we've learned over our careers with each other. So yeah, I see um, a question from Julian. So okay. Julian asks, what do you mean by high barrier content? Is it gated or is it paid? So that's a great question, Julian. So when I say high barrier and high value content, no, it's not about gating or and it's not about someone has to pay for it. Yes, you will eventually get to a point where your customers and readers will want to pay for it. And that's what uh, Gong Labs has done. And that, that's what uh, Uri has and his team, Devin, they have done it. They've done an amazing job. So you will eventually get there. But what I mean by high barrier content is, again, so in, in the case of uh, Gong, they are catering to the salespeople. I mean, when I say salespeople, it's all the way entire across the sales org, all the way from SDRs, BDRs, account executives to the chief revenue officer, VP of sales, right? They are on a continuous basis. They're sharing content and based on the data that they're gathering on an anonymous basis. So they're not sharing opinions. They're not sharing a perspective, but they're sharing content around. So for example, last week, I think they mentioned about, hey, you know what? Don't just send a follow-up email, say just following up, but then they have data. Yes, we all know that instinctively in our gut, right? But they actually have data to back it up to say that that is not what translates to more meetings or less no-shows, but here's what you can do. You point that at the same time, you're offering value and tips and tactics as to what you can do to increase your uh, uh, meetings with the buyers. So that's an idea, an example of a high barrier, high value content. And just to add to it, I think the best practice in the industry is ungated content and your content should, if it's unique um, and nobody can duplicate it, then it's, um, you know, it's going to get passed around and people will come to you. For example, I know with us at Intelligence Node, we, um, we have a lot of people just come to us. We're not actually, we don't do a, we, a lot of our leads are inbound coming directly to us. And um, part of it is, you know, content that we're providing 
um, uh, we've, you know, and through our SEO and paid programs as well. But um, I think that best practice, just to talk about gated versus ungated, I think that's, I think that's the best practice out there. Maybe you collect an email on, on key. If you, if you're really at the early, early stages and you need to develop your, your lists, um, uh, you know, putting some gated uh, requirements around your your best content. You might want to use emails to collect emails and back into enriching the data there. Okay. So, are there other comments or questions? Zero budget. Um, we have zero budget. It's all content and co-op co marketing, collaborating with others. Yeah, yeah. With zero budget, that makes um, makes it really, really, really hard, and you have to just lean into your content. And so that's, I think, that's the right approach. It's, you know, um, it's unfortunate, but you know, you can also do webinars with, you know, try to get some joint webinars. I've seen companies that have zero budget partner with another company and collaborate on webinars so that. Um, you know, they can, and they, sh I've done that actually as a technique myself, where we collaborate and I say, hey, I'll volunteer to do all the work. I'll put all the stuff together if you share the email list with me. And um, that's, that's been a good strategy. So that might be something you want to consider if yeah, there's an so organization if, in the, yeah. Yeah, if I can chime in there. Uh, so Ryan, uh, I'm not sure uh, what uh, business or what industry uh, you're in. But something that you can do is even start something like a podcast. It, it won't take a whole lot of budget, okay? And uh, you can actually speak with your community, with your users, with your partners. And just, it's, it's all about what is happening in that industry today. It's mm -hmm. not about you pitching your company or products or services. It's just having people say and share what, what they're seeing. Yeah. I'm curious if people are using podcasts as a strategy, if anybody else on the on the call is using podcasts as a strategy, I saw one hand go up. I can't see everyone, of course. Okay. Yeah. Or if you can just, type just, in the chat. I see from Lila, Sarah. Just, just a can question. Just chime in. You guys can unmute, oh. and I think it might be Hello. faster. Yeah, go ahead. It's Paul here. Hi, Paul. Yeah. Hey, Paul. Hey, Lila. How's it, Vijay? Um, just with uh, was it Ryan? Yeah, Ryan asked about. I, I never forget what Sangram always says. Um, you know, he's, he's, I think he's in our heads in some place all, all the time. You know, he's up there somewhere <laughs> with some some information that we know. Um, I, I asked, did, does he have some current clients? Because with zero budget, um, yeah, I, mean, I think we've all been there when we start. Well, I mean, we've you know when either we started our own companies or you know we've, we've been in startups or in a marketing capacity. Um, Sangram always talks about um, what they did successfully right in the beginning was they always used to bring their, their customers in. So I just asked, does he have customers? If you don't, then you can't do this, obviously. But bring the customers in uh, and, and it also goes to events. So it's like two points, it's killing two uh, birds with one stone. So in, in, uh, rather use your current customers to build your content, build your innovation, more ideas, what's happening, your experiences, build your case studies, build, and, and go through that perspective. Start with the customer and, 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 and then turn it around to do that flywheel, Vijay, that you're talking about. So instead of starting a new podcast, if you don't have budget or a new this or a new that, just start with your, your current client base, even if it's five clients or three clients or whatever. 
and maybe have weekly or, or monthly meetings and then just produce the, the content out of that and, and, and uh, the innovation. That's your best place, right? Um, yeah. And go deeper. You could sell more to them as well. Okay, that's my that's five perfect. cents. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Paul. I, I just yeah. wanted to, DJ, we have like three minutes left. Um, I just wanted to ask if other people could unmute and maybe share one best practice that they think they've, that or, or a, a best practice for their business. It would be really helpful for the whole community here if we could all sort of share one thing or one or two things. Um, and uh, so unmute yourself and uh, jump in if you have uh, something you can share with us in the last two minutes. I, I have a good one. Um, so we are still struggling to generate um, demand and generate leads. But one of the things that I've done that has been really helpful is to really partner close with sales and understand what are the challenges that they're actually facing in the sales cycle and how can we address that, whether it's through content. And so one of the issues we had was get, getting credibility because we're so new. Um, and so that led us to a different type of content where we were starting to really focus more on the results, showing the product um, and highlighting some of our clients, which we weren't doing as well. But in terms of focus, I think that really helped. Yeah, that's that's I've done that too, Sarah. And that's a great best practice. You you just have to lean into your product and your and and data. You have to have data. You can't just talk. You know, you got to have numbers and um, customer testimonials. And if you don't have customers, get some pilot customers and tell them you'll give them the product for free and let them use it if they'll give you some testimonials. <laughs> so, yeah. Anybody else yeah, want so to share? That's actually a great point. I mean, uh, something Sarah pointed out, and I think uh, this is also surfacing in the chat over here, is out of the gate, it, it's super hard to create this high barrier, high value content. Let me just put it straight. It, it's not easy. Okay. But I've seen, especially working with so many other clients, and even back in the days when I was leading marketing, right, a lot of fundamentals are missing. And that's something that you can tackle right away. So testimonials, case studies, talking about your product, not just blindly pitching the features, but what does it really mean for your buyer and user? You can start at that level. And, and also, um, I think a really important angle is not talking about the product, but talking about the problems you're solving for the customer, right? How the product will solve these problems. Um, and I think just, I'm really sensitive to time. My clock says we're at the top of the hour. And I asked, uh, so I just want to turn it back over to Terry to wrap it up and, um, uh, from Vijay and I, thank you everybody for attending today. We really appreciate your your support, your commentary, your involvement. It really makes a difference um, when we're presenting and I appreciate everybody chiming in. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.